Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving Live. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. That's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's get this show on the road. Well, hello there, everybody. Um, welcome to another one of our programs, Collaborative Problem Solving, especially focused on schools. If you're interested in joining in today, um, the call-in number is 646-727-2691. Uh, we do have uh, something planned for the first half hour or so today, so uh, feel free to call in to ask our uh, guest questions if you have questions for him. Uh, he'll be on with us till about 4 p.m., and then we'll save the last 15 minutes of the program if you have any questions about that are specific to your school or specific to your attempts to do collaborative problem solving with a particular student or kid with whom you may be working. Uh, that's the basic order of events for today. Um, once again, the call-in number, 646-727-2691. Our uh, guest today is Dr. Craig Murphy. He's a school psychologist in the Newton, Massachusetts public school system. And uh, he's been overseeing a project uh, in the Newton public schools in which uh, collaborative problem solving has been implemented in uh, the elementary schools in Newton, um, and he'll have to tell you how many there are. I believe there's 15, but he can correct me on that once he's on. Um, and I thought uh, we'd have Dr. Murphy on because lots of schools are uh, trying to implement collaborative problem solving, and uh, Newton is one of the school systems which, with which I've had the pleasure of working, but uh, schools that have done it often have some insights for those that are in the midst of trying it or uh, in the midst of contemplating trying it. And so uh, I thought it'd be neat to have Dr. Murphy offer us some of his insights. Um, so uh, Dr. Murphy is now on the air with us. How are you doing today, Dr. Murphy? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, and Dr. Murphy and I have been working together on this project for about two years um, and I thought it'd be great for you to give us number one uh, a bit of background information on how uh, Newton, Massachusetts public schools uh, came to implement collaborative problem solving. I know that it's through a grant that you receive. Maybe that's a good place to start for people. Yeah, that'd be great. So we were fortunate enough to receive the Elementary Counseling Grant, which is a federally funded grant initiative um, to improve, to evaluate and improve the way that we support kids with challenging behaviors or fragile emotions. Um, so when we were notified, we were one of 35 school districts in the country to receive the grant, um, and it's a three-year project. Um, at that point, I was very familiar with Dr. Green's work, and we were fortunate that we had some um, proximity working in our, fact, in our favor, and I contacted Dr. Green to see if he'd be willing to be, serve as a consultant to our district as we learned more about collaborative problem solving and 
how that could help improve the ways that we support kids with challenging behaviors. Um, and you were right, we do have 15 elementary schools. We're a pretty large district right outside of the Boston area. Um, so that's really how it started. And, of course, we haven't been uh, implementing it in every elementary school. Um, Want to give us a little bit of information about which schools we started with and why and how they were chosen. Yes, definitely. So, the, again, the, one of the goals of the grant was to establish what we refer to as our best for students teams, our behavioral and emotional support teams for students. And so our first initiative is to identify and, and to implement these, school, these teams at each of the 15 schools. Once we were able to do that, those teams actually serve as a conduit for us to spread different initiatives. So once we were able to form those teams, we reached out to principals and said, you know, we have this opportunity to work with Dr. Green um, to learn more about collaborative problem solving and to learn ways to use collaborative problem solving to support challenging kids. Um, then principals self-selected. They let us know, yeah, we'd really be interested in that. And then the first step was to have Dr. Green consult, um, to speak to the whole staff and to give an overview of collaborative problem solving and what it meant to see kids through this lens. And then based on their feedback, uh, principals would let us know um, if they thought that would be a good model for their school. Um, and actually, to this point, every school that we've had, Ross, present to the staff, every school and each principal has decided that they would be very interested. Um, we've had an overwhelming amount of interest across the district. So I think at this point we're at school number seven out of 15 because what we've been able to do is provide roughly 10 hours of training in the model to the entire staff, classroom teachers, psychologists, social workers, nurses, learning center teachers, classroom assistants. Um, so, so far it's been overwhelming. And the first thing that we've really focused on, on, focused on is changing teacher perceptions. And what we have seen is that for teachers to really become invested in supporting kids with challenging behaviors, they need to understand why collaborative problem solving is different. And it's a different way of viewing kids and a different way of supporting them. So once teachers have kind of changed their perceptions, they've really become a lot more invested in being part of the team to help change the behaviors. And that's a, that's a point that I uh, frequently make on the program, and that is, oh, and, and, and other, other places as well, and that is that if you just introduce teachers to Plan B, um, there's a good chance that it will fall flat because they don't yet, not just educators, anybody, if somebody doesn't have the sort of grounding in terms of why they would want to do Plan B in the first place, then Plan B comes off as being fairly technique-y and yep. um, doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to people. And, and I guess you're saying that you found that to be the case in Newton as well. Yeah, I, I, without a doubt. We've had a lot of classroom teachers who have heard a lot of different techniques and strategies, and I, I feel like teachers have, said, have kind of come to the table saying, you know, we've heard, this, we've heard it all, we've tried it all, this kid just needs to do what he needs to do. Um, and I've had that resistance over my years, too, in terms of trying to convince teachers, listen, I'm not trying to just give in, I'm not trying to just let the kid run wild, um, but we need to understand what the problem is before we start coming up with solutions. And that's what collaborative problem solving is really allowed me to see and has really allowed classroom teachers to understand. Um, and I think once they, once they understand that and once they begin to understand the kids that are frustrating them um, better and understand what their behavior may represent in terms of underlying lagging skills, it really changes the whole ballgame. And teachers come to the table kind of refreshed and renewed and, uh, with some optimism that they may have lost over the year um, due to frustration working with the kid. Uh, but that's been a big difference for us and for our teachers. Do you, do you run into 
I know I do, but maybe I have a unique experience. Do you run into a lot of teachers that are demoralized, have lost a bit of hope, especially in the behavior management department? No doubt about it. And I think what we've seen and what teachers have told us is that there's a lot more pressure or they're, they're feeling a lot more pressure around standardized testing and other outcome variables that are maybe they may perceive as indicators if they're not doing a good job. And so when they have kids that are really pushing the envelope and really challenging them and they may perceive these kids as being a poor reflection on themselves, um, they get really angry and frustrated. And they're a lot less willing and a lot less patient with those kids. Um, so what this has allowed them to do is, um, especially we've even had Dr. Green sit down with teachers and teachers have been asking him for quick fixes or almost looking for magic to turn the kids around. And what Dr. Green has said to them and has said to all of us is, listen, this isn't magic. And just like we need to be patient and understanding for kids that have reading disabilities, and we often understand that kids with reading disabilities take a long time to respond to interventions and to show growth. Same things with kids with emotional or behavioral disabilities. Um, it's not magic. We're not going to have someone come into school and fix it magically. It is going to take time. And I think when teach, once teachers hear that and once they, they hear that there are actually skills that we're going to help kids develop that are going to allow them to respond more adaptively in the future, I think that's when they, that's when they turn it around and realize that this is a process and they're invested in long-term change. I think that's when they get renewed. Now, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking that there are a few things um, people who are not proximal to Boston uh, could be thinking right now. One is uh, we don't have Ross Green to come in and uh, do an overview of collaborative problem solving. We don't have Ross Green to come in or, or an expert on collaborative problem solving to come in and sit down with teachers. So this is actually sort of a unique situation because um, Newton is proximal to Boston and I have been able to be involved. So now let me put you on the spot with a tough question. If you were in a school or school system uh, and you didn't have a sort of collaborative problem-solving expert proximal to your school system, um, is this still doable? I think it's without a doubt doable. Uh, you know, what the, all the principals have done for all the training groups, uh, the first thing they did, they've purchased materials, they've purchased books for teachers to read, and that's been a nice resource for teachers to do some independent um, learning, but most important, getting people together, getting them discussing kids. Um, there's actually a lot of um, resources on the website that are now very helpful, but even just starting with the ALSUP, starting with an overview of the three different plan options for how we respond to challenging kids, getting groups of people that are interested in helping challenging students to sit around the table, talk about these kids in a meaningful way, um, and I guess the best example I could give is I've, I've had meetings where when, when we're not looking at kids through this lens, where we're having meeting after meeting about how we're supposed to discipline this kid. Should it be a week-long suspension? Should it be, you know, move them into a different classroom? We're spending so much time and energy making sure that our punishments are severe enough um, that when we start talking about collaborative problem solving, it just shifts the entire focus. It allows us to look at kids proactively. It allows us to acknowledge, yes, the behavior is very problematic and very disruptive, um, but it's also an indicator of the underlying problems or skill deficits. Um, so by shifting that focus and being able to do that as a group, um, I think you can become a quick study. And there, out of these study groups that we have at the elementary schools, uh, most recently out of the 10 sessions, Dr. Green is joining us for you know, three to five of the 10. 
um, and although people have really benefited from the time that you've been able to join us, um, the discussions continue to be very meaningful and fruitful um, when they're only school-based. And actually, sometimes the school personnel are going to be more likely to speak up and become more invested um, when it is just school-based people because they're probably a little bit less um, intimidated. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think it can be done. Um, although your consultation is very valuable to us, I think you, you could do it either way. And the other thing people could be thinking is, yeah, but what about our really tough kids? Yep. Um, you know, uh, maybe this would fly, this collaborative problem solving would fly with um, the not-so-difficult ones. Um, I know the answer to this question because I know some of the kids we've been applying collaborative problem solving to over the last two years. But um, what's your thought on whether this is applicable to the most difficult kids in the system? I think, in you know, there are probably three or four kids in particular that I'm thinking, and, and this has kind of been uh, one lesson we've learned through these trainings. Um, and it's almost true of anything, any time as a school or as a teacher or as a school-based team when you're learning um, a new strategy or a new approach or a new way to view kids, it's, it's, it's been hard to start with our heaviest hitters. And there's been a couple of kids who have been very, very challenging where teachers, again, at first think, Let's bring Dr. Green and he'll turn this, hopefully he'll turn him around. And what's been very validating to us is the few times that you have joined us and said, you know what, you guys are right, he's a really hard kid. Um, and it doesn't mean that we can't get him back on track, but it is going to take a while. Uh, and I think what that allowed us to do is kind of take a deep breath and realize, listen, Johnny's not going to turn it around in a week and maybe not even in a couple months. And his, his pile of unsolved problems is so big, we have to prioritize our targets and start working not only with him, but with the family, with the classroom teachers, maybe with an assistant if that's the case. Um, and it's allowed us to kind of slow down our pace a little bit. Um, and it's also allowed us to form meaningful connections with families as opposed to the adversarial relationships where the families feel like we don't want the kid and the teachers are saying the family doesn't do the right thing or they don't care about the kid. Um, looking through the collaborative problem-solving lens and bring the family to the table most specifically, I can think of a, currently a fifth-grade dad who had never come to a meeting in two or three years at our school. Once he had learned about the flavor of the discussions that we've been having, he decided to come, and he ended up being, making some really valuable contributions. So uh, the child, this, this kid I'm thinking about in particular, he's still having a tough time, but I'll tell you the explosive behaviors have decreased significantly. His class time and meaningful participation in classroom activities has increased dramatically. Um, and now we know when we see those extremely disruptive behaviors, we know we need to back up and revisit our plan and do some more talking and ongoing support as opposed to just waiting until the explosive behavior happens and responding to that. Um, but in short, it can definitely help these kids that are really challenging. And most importantly, as opposed to just pulling the pulling a plug on a kid and saying, okay, he doesn't belong in the public schools and starting looking elsewhere, I think this has allowed us to kind of slow down that process and not look at sending kids out of district so quickly. You know, it's a, um, you're making a great point about the dilemma that is often faced when you have an extremely challenging kid because, quite frankly, that kid is on a different developmental playing field. And when you're... Um, working in a school system that has a predominantly academic orientation and has federally mandated academic demands that hurdles that a school and a teacher have to get all the kids over becomes very difficult to um, t 
take a step back and say, um, we, we may have to ease up on what we're hoping for from this kid academically, because until we get his behavior squared away, he's not going to be accessing his educational program anyways. But I, I know that schools and teachers feel a tremendous amount of pressure to get that academic job done, and sometimes um, that makes their efforts to work on the behavior uh, much more, much faster than is realistic in terms of what can be achieved quickly. Um, so while they're busy focusing on academics, um, the behavior is still blowing the kid out of the water, and they're still not getting any academics. Um, what, what, any thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I think that's, that's, where, that's where teachers have really looked to us as a school-based team to give them permission to shift their focus temporarily, or, and, it might, and maybe not even just for a week or two, but allowing them to, when they become tunnel vision where this kid has to do his homework, he has to do his homework, he has to get the writing done, and I think we've joked writing tends to be number one on our list at least, um, when we've said, okay, you know what, for now, if, we're, if you're talking about writing and homework, and the reality is this kid's using expletives, he's making other kids feel unsafe, he's threatening students, you know, perhaps we can put that on the back burner and focus on allowing this kid to feel safe and allowing the school and his peers to feel safe around him. And once we're able to stabilize some of those behaviors and gain a better understanding of what's leading to all this dust, this disruptive be these behaviors in the school, let's focus on that first, and eventually we'll get back to the writing. I think the teachers are really looking for that validation that eventually we are going to get back to academics, um, as opposed to, you know what, don't worry about math, let's just worry about behavior, because then they feel like, you know, we're giving in and we're never going to expecting this kid to learn. Whereas collaborative problem solving really allows the teachers to, they hear that message of, yeah, we agree with you, academics is very important, and we really need to help him become a better writer. But right now, we're probably not there yet. And I think that they've, they've been validated in that sense, and I think as long as they feel like we're getting back to academics at some point, they're willing to be part of that team. So I want to be mindful of your time. We've got about 12 minutes left uh, of your time and then another 15 minutes after that. Um, we do have somebody who's called in, um, but I want to hold them off for just a few more minutes. The, another question that I wanted to ask you, um, you had said that teachers are often looking for permission to ease up a little bit academically so we can get the behavior squared away. Um, what type of resistance have you run into? I don't know if resistance is the right word. In what ways have you found that um, classroom teachers, principals, whoever, uh, tend to struggle um, with some of the concepts of collaborative problem solving, and, and what do they tend to struggle with? I think the most common struggles we've had have been in terms of, if you look at the three different plan options, uh, what I've jokingly referred to, and teachers that I'm close to, teachers that are more traditionally plan A teachers, where they're you know, they, they run a tight ship, all the kids have the same expectations, and they're worried that if they let their guard down or they, if they allow what they would consider wiggle room for, this, um, for the child with difficult or challenging behaviors, um, they're worried that's going to send a poor message to the rest of the classroom. Um, or they're worried that's going to send a poor message to the rest of the parents if they hear about um, Johnny having special privileges or not being expected to do the same things. Um, but I think the most, the easiest way we've kind of cleared that hurdle, if you will, is when we've talked to teachers about, okay, well, let me just use a little example about reading. Do you have any poor readers in the classroom? And, of course, they do. And we talk about, well, do they have to clear the same hurdles as your stronger readers? 
in this, this academic metaphor has uh, every class, every school we've been at has been really um, reinforcing to teachers because then they start saying, well, actually, yeah, our poor readers do go to the learning center, or yeah, our poor readers, you know, they're not doing quite as much reading, or they're reading different level texts, or they're working with the literacy specialists, or they're doing ongoing assessments more often for their lower readers. And then when we ask them, you know, we just want to do the same thing for our kids that are having developmental delays around behavior and emotions, regulating their emotions. Um, once they see it that way, they've been much more willing to be part of that, to help us make that decision to change the expectations for these kids. Um, and then when we actually pinpoint specific skills that we're working on, as opposed to more of a generic friendship group or snack group or counseling group, where they're not, there's not as clear of a target, um, they're much more willing to play ball then. And then they see, okay, we're, we're really helping Johnny work on this specific skill, and hopefully that's going to lead to him being more available for instruction later on down the road. That's really helped us clear those hurdles with uh, people that are more resistant. Are there any teachers that have not been able to come along for the ride? Yes. Uh, we, we've had a couple teachers that um, they are plan A. They've um, been willing to be part of the study groups. Um, some that have actually been pretty confrontational in terms of saying, I don't buy it. I don't see kids that way. I'm not letting them run the show. I'm not going to let them get away with that. They're just being manipulative. So there have been some people that have not, um, I guess, bought into this different way of seeing kids. Now, ironically enough, we have one fourth-grade teacher in particular who ha was very resistant and very confrontational and to some degree kind of ruined our study group. Um, but I've become pr pretty close with her, and she's actually working with one of our more challenging students. And as she has explained to me over the year about what she's doing, she's doing a lot of collaborative problem solving. And when I mentioned that to her, because I think she's been, become really invested in making sure this kid's successful, I said, you know, it sounds like you're doing a lot of collaborative problem solving. And she said, what do you mean? And when I said, well, you know, you're taking the time to talk with him, you're asking him what's frustrating, you're listening to that, you're coming up with solutions that work for both of you. She's like, well, that's not collaborative problem solving. And as I reminded her the tenets of the program, the study group, she kind of chuckled and she said, well, you know, you can call it whatever you want. That's just what I'm doing. So it's almost like she didn't want to come totally around to admit that it has been beneficial. Um, but there, I think there are, there are going to clearly still be some more traditional plan A professionals that um, this isn't going to be a great match for them in their style. Got it. Well, um, we run into those folks. And here's the interesting thing I'd say. Um, you know, the study groups that you were doing have a, had a finite period of time that they ran. Yep. And, um, you know, there are some folks who are salivating at the thought of doing collaborative problem solving. They, this is sort of um, congruent with their style anyways. And yep. so collaborative problem solving does not represent a significant conceptual leap for them. Sometimes it presents some practical issues as it relates to the specifics of doing plan B. And then there's folks who are, um, you know, come along and try, try it on for size a little bit and slowly but surely get used to it. They weren't necessarily, yeah, this wasn't necessarily exactly the way they were doing things in the first place. Um, I think some of the videos on the Lives in the Balance website in the Voices of CPS section uh, have some folks in it who are, are talking about how they were pretty plan A, um, yep. but then on ex being exposed to the model and uh, take, having the courage to try it on for size, um, they uh, ended up uh, feeling that this was a good match for them. But then there's also folks who um, don't necessarily have an immediate positive response to the model. In fact, it may be an immediate negative response to the model. I 
run into that frequently. I'm not just in educators. I've run into it in inpatient unit staff, parents, um, you name it. Um, and then in those folks, their exposure to the model is more seed-throwing. They don't necessarily take to it immediately. Um, and then over time, it starts to grow on them yep. in ways that occur sometimes outside of the group in which they're learning about the model in the first place. So, uh, you know, a hope springs eternal, even for folks who don't have an immediate positive response to the whole idea. Yep. So let, let's take this caller. Um, hopefully they have a question that is specific to what we are covering with you. Um, and let me see if we can get the technology to work here and see what they have to say. You're on the air. Did you have a question for Dr. Murphy or me? Uh, hello, my name is Dijemi. Uh, are you hearing me? Yes. Yes, we hear you. Okay. Uh, my name is Alan Katz. I'm actually calling from Israel. I've, uh, you know me from the uh, SCDC uh, Parents and Support Group. So I've been a follower of uh, you for a very long time. Well, and you're the first I time we've had a caller from Israel, so we're glad to have you. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I've been with Beth on the site, on the parent site, for quite a long time. So I'm sort of pretty involved with, in, with on, the, uh, on the internet with uh, pushing, advocating uh, CPS. I first want to just make a comment on the previous discussion and then ask my question. When you t when you talk about CPS, essentially we're teaching skills. You know, it's not a it's not a matter of just be, uh, doing a dis doing the discipline thing. And so when we put aside academics, we we're not sort of pushing aside learning. You know, this, I think the CPS is more is going to be worth more to the kid than all the academics is going to do. Now the academics uh, that go the kids do today is just sort of rote learning, and don't doesn't really teach them much in terms of thinking. The thing that's going to teach them thinking is CPS. And that's why I say that CPS is not just for the the kids that are making trouble. The CPS is for every kid. When you realize that CPS helps not only it helps internalization of values, right? It teaches kids to think. It's for every kid, and it becomes much more easier for for teachers to sort of get into uh, pack into CPS and not just see it as just uh, Something I use for a special problematic kid. It's, it's for all kids, and it helps with motivation. Makes kids more intrinsically motivated, and it's more respectful to teach a kid to solve problems in a collaborative way than in a sort of you know solve problems you know using discipline. And I think that's uh, I think this orientation is pretty important uh, in sort of putting across uh, CPS in schools. So that's my comment on. Uh, the previous discussion. Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate your comments. I, I can't think of anything that you said that I would disagree with. Um, yes, you're teaching kids skills, and often skills, you know, it depends on your point of view, but these are certainly skills that are going to serve them very well later on. But I guess the point that I picked on up on mostly was, um, yeah, uh, definitely, collaborative problem solving is not just for the challenging variety of kid. I, it's for everybody. Um, I will say that it's yes, a challenging variety. Of, what's that? It's, it's, okay, it helps even more for the challenging, but it's more respectful. And it's a question, how do you deal with problems in your school? Right? Do you do it in a collaborative way? Do you, 
which means that there will be more lasting the solutions and there will be there's more internalization of the values you're trying to teach. You know? Instead of doing it, you might get, uh, and this brings me to my question, um, a lot of teachers in schools where they have a PBS, a positive behavior support, or uh, they use ABBA, and they claim that they, they are teaching skills. Could you tell us the difference between uh, how, what, how they teach skills and how CPS teach skills? My, my, my answer to that was generally that ABBA and PBS teach skills like they teach a dog to do tricks. I don't know. I would like to hear your comments on that. Well, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Murphy take a crack at it first, and then I'm happy to take a crack at it as well, because Dr. Murphy also has some experience. Yeah, yeah, sorry, uh, how would a teacher in a, in a PBS school sort of introduce uh, CPS as well? That's part of the, uh, Dr. Murphy, why don't you take a crack at that first? Yeah, you know, I, what I would say, and Dr. Green and I have talked about the similarities and differences between positive behavioral supports and collaborative problem solving. And although I think positive behavioral sports is a great start in terms of trying to support kids as, and help them de demonstrate pro-social behaviors, um, one of our concerns or one of my concerns, and I think Dr. Green would agree, is that a lot of the foundations for positive behavioral supports lies under the assumption that behavior is functional in terms that it works for kids and they're demonstrating behavior to get out of something or they're demonstrating behavior to gain something or to make other kids laugh. Um, and a lot of positive behavioral sports rest on that assumption of motivation. And what I have seen personally and professionally is that a lot of kids that are, you know, mildly, they're a little bit challenging, but for the most part they're good kids, positive behavioral supports can help them. It can it almost serve as a reminder and help refocus their efforts to demonstrate more pro-social behaviors. Um, my concern about positive behavioral supports is that they don't consistently help teach kids lagging skills. Um, there are some versions or some types of positive behavioral supports that will include that component, uh, but I think more often than not, it's more of that traditional functional behavioral assessment where we're looking at ABC analysis for kids. And that's the one, th that approach is really not, it's not going to be as effective for kids that are really challenging, that genuinely have delays or skill deficits uh, that are identified through collaborative problem solving. And I think that's where collaborative problem solving really puts kids in positions to be successful and puts school-based teams in a position to understand kids better and support them through teaching of skills and, you know, collaborating with kids to come up with solutions as opposed to just, you know, trying to manipulate the environment, trying to manipulate consequences, again, more focused on that motivation piece. And that's where I... The, one of the biggest distinctions between the two, um, that, that's where I would suggest that positive behavioral supports are not going to be quite as effective as collaborative problem solving. Well, on that note, unfortunately, I know that you have another commitment that we've already made you slightly late for. Thank well, you fine. very much for being on the program today. I think that um, you've, you've given us some in-the-trenches perspectives on what it takes to make this work in a, in a school and in a system. So I greatly appreciate you being on. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Bye. Dr. Craig Murphy from the Newton, Massachusetts Public Schools, uh, where seven of the schools have been implementing or are in the process of implementing uh, collaborative problem solving. Let me um, just take off on a little bit of what uh, Dr. Murphy was saying. I, I hate to um, come across as being critical of positive behavior supports because there's 
lots of folks out there who see collaborative problem solving and positive behavior supports as being uh, quite congruent with each other. And lots of folks who have been um, implementing collaborative problem solving as part of their efforts to implement positive behavior supports. Uh, but as Dr. Murphy was mentioning, um, a lot of this, and there is no single unified positive behavior supports. Um, and I've definitely seen some, though not so common, renditions of positive behavior supports that um, do speak to the need to teach lagging skills. But as Dr. Murphy mentioned, probably one of the key uh, points of departure for collaborative problem solving and positive behavior supports is the definition of the word function. Um, by, some, by one definition of the word function, and this is closer to what the general thrust of positive behavior supports would be, all behavior, including challenging behavior, has function. And a synonym for function these days, using a contemporary definition of function, is that the behavior is working at helping a kid get something he wants, uh, and the cliche there is often attention, or help him escape or avoid something tedious, difficult, boring, scary, uncomfortable. Uh, and one of the common ones there is uh, homework. Um, what's the goal of intervention if the challenging behavior is working? Uh, teach the kid that his challenging behavior is not going to work. And as I've said before on this program, that message is usually delivered in the form of punishment and try to elicit or encourage what are called replacement behaviors that we adults think would work better. Uh, that usually accomplished through use of reward. In other words, the contemporary definition of function, the behavior is working, at helping the kid get, escape, or avoid, um, has led us directly toward what we usually do with challenging kids. We reward and punish them. We give them the incentive to do well. But those of you who've heard me speak recently know that we also need to ask the following questions. If the kid had the skills to go about getting, escaping, and avoiding in an adaptive fashion, then why is he going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in such a maladaptive fashion? Doesn't the fact that he's going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in a maladaptive fashion help us understand that he doesn't have the skills to get, escape, and avoid in an adaptive fashion? In other words, if he could do well, wouldn't he be doing well? Isn't doing well preferable to not doing well? Yes, but only if you have the skills to pull it off. So from a collaborative problem-solving perspective, what is the function of a challenging behavior, well, it's a different definition of function. The definition of function from a collaborative problem-solving perspective is that it simply lets us know that a kid doesn't have the skills to do it better. Because if he could, he would. Two very different definitions of function that would lead us to very different interventions. What's, what's the goal of intervention? What are the goals of intervention if you believe a kid is lacking the skills to respond adaptively to the demands that are being placed upon him, uh, goal number one, understand. Understand why he's challenging in the first place. Why are kids challenging in the first place? Because they're lacking the skills 
to respond adaptively to the demands that are being placed upon them. Then uh, you've got to get busy. You've got to get organized. You've got to identify these specific conditions under which that's occurring, under which there's the clash of the two forces, uh, lagging skills and demands for those skills. Luckily, challenging kids are actually pretty predictable. They are challenging under certain conditions. And in collaborative problem solving, those of you who know the model well know that uh, those conditions are called unsolved problems. Got to identify those specifically. Is it is it homework? Is it um, teeth brushing? Is it time spent in front of a screen? Those would be problems, unsolved problems that would be common at home. Is it uh, getting started to work on a particular assignment? Is it staying to work on assignments? Is it writing in general, reading in general, circle time, how the kid is acting in the hallway, lunch, recess, school bus? Those are all highly specific unsolved problems. And I'm willing to guarantee that some of those unsolved problems apply to the challenging kid you're trying to help right now, whether he's in your home or your classroom. Goal number two is to identify these specific conditions under which challenging behavior is occurring for each kid. And then, of course, goal number three, it's time to get busy solving those problems collaboratively. When you solve problems collaboratively instead of unilaterally, you end up teaching the kid a lot of the skills he's lacking. In other words, a lot of the skills that you'd want to be working on um, are taught indirectly a good part of the time rather than directly just by applying the ingredients of collaborative problem solving. Of course, it helps you get organized and it helps you identify if you're using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. The ALSIP, it's a list, two sections, once again, in the top section, it's a list of lagging skills that often come into play with challenging kids. And in the bottom section, it's a list of potential unsolved problems with lots of space for you to add unsolved problems that are specific to the challenging kid you're filling the ALSIP out on. As Dr. Murphy mentioned, you don't need Ross Green sitting in your building to get the ball rolling on collaborative problem solving. You can just get the ball rolling on collaborative problem solving. Um, and one very effective way to do this, and this is what Dr. Murphy was speaking to, um, is to start making sure that the ALSIP, the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, if you're not familiar with the form, just go on the Lives in the Balance website and download it. You just need to click on the paperwork link on, from the home page and You'll have downloadable versions of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems right before your very eyes. Print it out. Copy it to your heart's content. There's two versions of it. There's one that looks like a checklist, which is my preferred version, and there's one that has a Likert scale for you to rate challenging behaviors, uh, challenging uh, lagging skills and unsolved problems. Um, I'm not big on counting or um, on tabulating. But in many schools, there's quite a press for quantifying, and that's not a bad thing, but that's why there's a uh, Likert scale version of the ALSIP. Uh, goal number one in your building is to start making sure that the ALSIP is part of your standard assessment protocol. And once again, this is a 20, 20 to 5-minute discussion 
uh, in meetings that take place already about what skills the kid is lacking, then another, by the way, the reason you're doing that is because you want to make sure you have the right lenses on. Now, now manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated limit testing, they're off the table. And the specific skills that a kid is lacking are on the table. Good. Now we have the right lenses on. Then we're filling out the bottom section, 20 to 25 minutes there, trying to nail down these specific unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating a kid's challenging episodes. Good. We've spent 40 to 50 minutes now getting really useful information. We've got the right lenses on. We've gotten organized. We know what our unsolved problems are that we need to solve so that the, as to reduce the kid's challenging behavior. Five to ten more minutes prioritizing because we might have a fairly lengthy list of unsolved problems, seven, eight, nine unsolved problems. That's what we've come to call the pile of unsolved problems that's been following this kid around for a very long time. Goal of intervention, get those problems solved. Once they're solved, they don't cause challenging behavior anymore. In other words, the goal of intervention is to move them from the unsolved pile to the solved pile. The ALSIP helps you do all that. So as Dr. Murphy mentioned, downloading the ALSIP, making sure there's a blank copy of the ALSIP in front of everybody who's in the meeting where we're trying to figure out why this kid is challenging and how we can help him, boy, that is a very productive use of 40 to 50 minutes in meetings that take place already. Good to have Dr. Murphy on. Things are going well uh, in the schools in Newton where collaborative problem solving is being implemented. And the other point that I want to emphasize once more before we run out of time for today, um, yes, there are going to be people who have an immediate positive response to the conceptualization of challenging behavior that collaborative problem solving brings to the table and the ways of trying to help challenging kids that flow from that conceptualization. And there are going to be people who weren't necessarily oriented toward collaborative problem solving in the first place in a building. They may have been pretty plan A, but they understand the information that's being provided to them. They come around on the fact that challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills. They are able to get the right lenses on and then they get brave, maybe they were brave already, probably so, and they start trying to do plan B. And no, it doesn't go all that well in the beginning, um, but then they keep at it. Maybe they go back to the Lives in the Balance website and they take a look at the different things, different ways in which plan B can go awry. You can find that in the uh, What is Collaborative Problem Solving uh, part of the website um, uh, and the Plan B part of the website shows a uh, video of actors showing how Plan B can go awry. Um, eventually, though, they get good at it. They start to experience success with it, and they're on board. And then there's people who don't necessarily have an immediate positive response. They are um, maybe pretty Plan A. This is the way maybe they've been doing these things for a long time. Maybe they're worried about what will happen if they um, start to do collaborative problem solving in their classrooms all legitimate concerns, but I've worked with a lot of people who were as plan A as the day is long, who did not have an immediate positive response to collaborative problem solving, who came around and are now among the most ardent advocates for the model. What, what kind of support do we may need to make sure that they have?
our building? What do we what do we need to do to um, help them try collaborative problem solving on for size? Try these new lenses on for size. That's the challenge for every building, every building leader, every classroom teacher in a building. This seems like a good place to call it a day. Uh, we're going to do this again next week. I'm trying to arrange an interview with a uh, principal in one of the schools that I've been working with. Uh, so we may well have a, uh, another guest next week. If not, uh, feel free once again every week to call in. Let us know how things are going in your building. Let us know what you're struggling with. Let us know about particular kids who you're having difficulty doing Plan B with. Just don't use their names. Um, and I hope to, that you'll join in next week. There won't be any shows, uh, programs, the following Mondays because of school vacation, but then we'll pick it up again in January. Hey, talk to you next week. Thanks for joining in.